morning, everyone. It is man coverage, February 20th, 2022. Mr. James Bonneville, Knoxville Nate, coming at you live, talking a little college football as we always do about this time. James, how you doing today, sir? It better be a crime. How about you? <laughs> I love that saying. Um, I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. Uh, it's the off season. Uh, we've got, you know, the Super Bowl just wrapped up. We got college football, you know, heading into the combine swing. And then it'll be spring practice time. So I'm looking forward to talking spring ball. I'm looking forward to breaking down the combine today. We got a lot of things to talk about. We got a huge guest joining us this afternoon. We will be welcoming former 1997 Rose Bowl winning quarterback Stanley Jackson, uh, now on the Big Ten Network, analyzing college football like nobody else. Uh, looking forward to talking to Stanley. Uh, really, honestly, evolutionized the quarterback position. I went back and watched the 97 Rose Bowl game last night, and what I saw was the future of the quarterback position. Absolutely. I mean, he really was, man. I mean, he was like, it was like watching a preview of Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray, you know, insert mobile throwing quarterbacks that exist today. And they were pretty much grown out of Stanley Jackson and what he did at Ohio State. I mean, especially when you look at today's RPO systems, especially and like a guy like Chip Kelly would have like literally had a field day with having Stanley Jackson being his uh, signal caller. I mean, it, you know, I mean, you put him with Pepe Pearson back then, it, it would have been very difficult, especially with the receiving core that they had at that time period. I mean, that could have been really nasty lining him up in the shotgun and see what he could do picking on safeties and linebackers left and right. So I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, and this guy was one of the first really athletic, mobile uh, quarterbacks. And because of that, his throwing abilities were undervalued. Very but, much so. But this guy could throw the football. Trust yeah. me, I went back and watched tape. I watched him when it happened, and uh, he could throw it just fine. It was just that he was one of the first really – uh, you know, mobile guys that could also throw it. And uh, that was why, you know, his throwing ability was was kind of under underlooked, but he could do it all. And I, I'm looking forward to talking to him today. A guy that came out of New Jersey and went to the Buckeyes, played in the NFL, the CFL, and uh, now does a tremendous job on the Big Ten Network. So I'm looking forward to talking to him today and um, really excited that he's going to be on the show. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, I think we should talk about something that came out uh, this week on 247 Sports. It was the AP Top 25 Programs of All Time in College Football. Uh, me and you have talked about this. We've got some agreements on some things. We've got some disagreements. Uh, but I want to just go over it real quick and um, you know talk about some, some of the teams that I think belong some of the teams that I think do not belong, so on and so forth. So the the top the top five, I have no problem with. It is Iowa, Ole Miss, Washington, Wisconsin, and Texas A&M. Honestly, I think Ole Miss is kind of a stretch uh, because they haven't had that consistency that I think is demanded on being in a, a, a you know group like this. But the rest of those teams – I think should be there and potentially I think Wisconsin should be higher. Uh, what do you think about those five? You know, I honestly, I mean, the hard part about this is just basic recency bias. Um, Iowa, quite frankly, I think should be higher. I mean, you look back from, they've had two coaches in nearly 50 years. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, outside of, you know, Bob Bowden and, and Joe Pa, uh, being at programs since Jesus Christ spoke in Omaha, uh, I mean, you've got two guys who have created stability. And you look at the trees, especially from Hayden Fry, what he has created in other coaches too as well, the Bill Snyders of the world, the Barry Alvarez's of the world, the Kirk Ferrances. I mean, you go down, look at the tree. 
I mean, I'm a Minnesota fan, and, you know, who hates Iowa? We hate Iowa. But you got to respect what they've done down there. It's when they recruit a kid, you know, that kid really believes that that coach is going to be there for four years. Right. So, uh, Ole Miss, I, I, I'm kind of shocked on this one because they just never were that program that could just take it to the next level, either basic because they don't have enough recruiting base in their state. They got to go out state and go up against programs that have much more in-depth in the SEC. Uh, but the Washingtons of the world, I mean, I, I, you look back during the 80s and 90s, during the Washington era, quite frankly, they should be higher. I mean, th- this yeah. is a a program that people will probably remember some of the downtimes when they were on probation. But, I, I mean, they had some unreal talent. I mean, you go back to that national championship year they had in 1990. I mean, that team was stacked. Oh, really, yeah. really stacked. And that's just the one year. But you had guys like Warren Moon and Hobart and Brunel. I mean, the quarterback position was just, I mean, they were a factory. But Don James alone was an unbelievable factor there. I mean, if I had to kick somebody off this list, I would probably kick off Ole Miss. Me but too. the rest of them, I, I think, belong in the top 25 right where they're at, at from 21 to 25. I agree. Um, Ole Miss just is not as consistent as these other programs and hasn't pumped out the talent over time uh, that these other programs have. I mean, when I think about uh, Lawyer Malloy and Corey Dillon and just Napoleon (laughs) Kaufman and all the great players, Steve Etman and all the great players that have come out of Washington, uh, they they belong here. And, um, you know, they're not the same at the same level that they used to be, but they're still a program that has some decent years and, and finds themselves inside the top 25. There is talent up in, up in the Washington area, and they can tap into Washington or into California. And I'm telling you, Kalen DeBoer is a name to watch in the future. I mean, this guy is – he came up the hard way. I mean, he was at NAIA Sioux Falls, and he created them to be a juggernaut. And look at what he's done in every step he's been the way on the way since. I mean, uh, OC under Tedford at Fresno State, and we all know how that went. When he was at Indiana, I mean, that offense was humming. And going back to become a head coach at Fresno and now at Washington, I mean, it, it, honestly, their offense is going to be exciting to watch in the, in the near future. And Michael Penix being there is going to be really fun. I agree. I think Penix, if healthy, uh, can help them get back – uh, where they want to be as a program. And that's the big if, is healthy, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. If he can be healthy, I think he can help uh, push that program forward. But going to the next couple teams here, uh, Arkansas, Michigan State, UCLA, Clemson, Miami, and Florida. Uh, the only teams I've got a problem with here are potentially Clemson because, yeah, they've been really solid uh, the past – 10 years they've been a really good program but before that I, I it was just kind of too far and few between for me but the rest of those guys uh belong in my opinion arkansas borderline but definitely in the top 25 top 30. you know i i i would have to disagree with you on clemson because once again it's recency biased i mean i know for a fact you're sitting there thinking about the ken hadfield era in the tommy west era and the bomb bobby i mean the tommy bowden era but Danny Ford took them to a national championship and won it back in 79. And plus, you got to go back to Frank Howard and how that program was running. I mean, Charlie Pell, I mean, you go through the list. They had some real good years, except they had a stretch probably for north of a decade where they weren't good. They were nebraska it up right then. But I, I could definitely see them there. I, if I had to pick one out of that group where I think you could possibly toss them to the wind, would be potentially Florida because Florida was really a average to below average program up until the time Steve Spurrier got there. And if, I mean, it's a stretch, but Arkansas, I mean, granted you got to go, I, I, I think they got to be in the top 25, but you got to look back at the Lou Holtz era as well as the Broyles era. I mean, they were really good. I, I personally, Michigan state should be higher. I mean, they had some unreal teams with Duffy Doherty, Perlis. I mean, heck, could you imagine if Nick Saban stayed? If Michigan State's administration would have paid him the million dollars a year and he stayed in East Lansing, 
those battles between Michigan and Michigan State could have been much different because those were, I mean, he had some unreal talent coming in at East Lansing. I mean, you go back and look at TJ Duckett, uh, Charlie Rogers. I mean, I could go on and on and what he did during a short time there in East Lansing, but that, that program's got history. Oh, I agree. I, I Michigan State belongs there. The only thing I'm thinking about Clemson is, you know, they did they did pick it up there under Danny Ford, but I'm talking about before Danny Ford. I mean, you look back at their record between, you know, 1977 and before, and they they were non-existent as a program. I mean, two and nine in '75, three and six and two in '76. Uh, you know, four and seven, five and six, three and eight, four and six, four and five. I mean, they just didn't have good teams going back, you know, through the years. There was a couple years in the 50s that they had some decent squads, but I'm just talking about overall in the existence of their program from its inception uh, up until 1980. I just don't see it on par uh, with the rest of these teams, but they're certainly good now. So yeah. we'll give them that. Uh, moving on, getting this getting this wrapped up here. Uh, we've got teams that definitely belong. 12 is Georgia. Uh, or 14 is Florida State. 13 is Auburn. 12 is Georgia. 11 is LSU. 10 is Tennessee. Um, probably belongs there, but that's debatable. 9 is Penn State. 8 is Texas. And 7 is Nebraska. I think we can agree that all those teams probably belong in there. Uh, the order of those, I think, could be you know discussed all day long, but I, yeah. I think we I think we can agree that all those teams belong, right? I mean, if you had to put a team lower than they should, that they're on this list, um, and granted, people are going to probably scream at me for saying this, Georgia. I mean, yeah, the Vince Dooley era was fantastic. I'm not going to deny that, but Herschel freaking Walker was a special player. Mark Rick, I mean. Nine and two, but Mark Rick would find a way to Mark Rick it up. You know, I mean, how many times would he had more talent on the field, but the farther they were in their career, by the time they were senior, they were worse than then when they were a freshman. Um, I mean, Kirby Smart's done a fantastic job in rebuilding that fan base and really getting them going and keeping that keeping those guys home. But honestly, I could see Georgia falling back and moving a team like Florida State up higher. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. Florida State should be higher, in my opinion, and uh, potentially, um, I think you could move LSU up higher than they are. I, I think yeah. LSU has been a pretty consistent team, and Tennessee obviously has a rich history, but the last twenty years have been underwhelming at yeah. best. At best, so I think they're kind of sliding the opposite direction. Um, Penn State, same thing. I mean, Joe Pa, just just his legacy alone. Um, gets you on this list, but, um, you know, they're, they're not the program they once were. However, you know, they're still a, a winning, uh, going to a bowl team every year. So I, I think, yeah. they belong, I think they belong close to where they're at. Texas, I think should probably go backwards just because of recent history, but Correct. you know, over time, uh, they, they, you know, had good teams. I mean, Mac Brown, uh, was a, was a tremendous coach while he was there. Uh, just hasn't been the same since. And then, you know, you look underneath there and uh, we talk these last seven teams and we go Nebraska, USC, Michigan, Notre Dame, uh, Ohio State, Alabama, and Oklahoma. And uh, all those teams, in my opinion, uh, you know, belong. I think the question is, you know, what, what order do you put them in? I think Nebraska is number seven simply because of uh, recent history. I mean, they, they've not been the same since Tom Osborne left. Uh, I really think they made a mistake firing Frank Solich, to be honest. Uh, that guy won nine games a year and they got rid of him. They haven't won nine games since. So hey, Steve Peterson, I said it the second he got rid of Frank Solich, that was a monster mistake Yeah, because Callahan came in and completely tried to change the culture from the ground up. I mean, got rid of their walk-on program, which was historic within yeah. Lincoln. I mean, historic. I mean, there are more walk-ons that become all Americans at Nebraska than probably yeah. the rest of the country combined. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it's crazy, but you look at the Devaney era and the Osborne era. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're right where they're at. And quite frankly, if we talk five years from now, they're probably moving back three spots if they keep on the same trajectory. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it's cool. You know, it's just a list for fun, obviously, but, you know, something that can be debated over time and something that we can definitely discuss as we move along. But I just thought it was cool, something to talk about in the offseason and break down, you know, the top 25 college football teams of all time. Uh, I think they got the list pretty much right. It's just the order that that comes into question, to be honest. So Yeah, I, I, honestly, I'm struggling right now. If I was going to take another team and add them to it uh, and kick out Old Miss, I mean, there's some names, but – I mean, you could make an argument for Minnesota because, I mean, granted, you know, they had some lean stretches in there, but, I mean, they were the Alabama up until, like, 1970. I mean, they won seven, if not more, national championships. Uh, you could make an argument for, gosh, who else could you make an argument for? I mean, th there, there's programs out there. You could take out Ole Miss and put them in, in there. So. Yeah, I was thinking that. I was trying to come up with with who I would replace them with, and that's where Syracuse. I mean, I could make an argument uh, for Syracuse, Arizona State. I mean, Arizona State potentially. I mean, it, there's been uh, BYU. Heck, BYU. I mean, I, I, BYU's I, I, missing from this list. Oregon is missing from this list. Um, there's some teams that that have had, uh, you know, good programs uh, or some programs that have had good teams over the years. You know. But I don't. I don't know if any of them take teams out of there. Yeah. Uh, like we said, Miss Ole Miss is the one that that could potentially, uh, you know, be replaced. But yeah, you know, I'm along those same lines. Uh, you know, that came out this week that they are going to be keeping uh, the the college football playoff where it's at. And you know, there was some votes to take it to twelve. And I thought that it might gain some traction. I thought that we might see a change, but alas, no. Uh, at least until 2025, we're going to keep it the way it is with the four-team playoff. You know, I don't know. I, I kind of, I'm kind of ready for the 12-team deal. I mean, there's teams that that are, you know, close every year. They're borderline, and you know, they get left out. And um, I don't know. I, I think that. I think we could handle a 12-team playoff. What What do you think? What are the problems with going to 12 teams? Well, I think they're twofold. Um, one, you'd have to blow up the contract with ESPN. Um, and okay with that? I, I, I'm fine with that. I mean, quite frankly, um, I think they got to do what the Super Bowl does and distribute the, the TV rights to the four major networks. And I think you could see some real fun. In, in, in that in that way to get to that point. But I think the bigger thing is the reason why they went to four uh, to begin with was to keep the Bulls happy, specifically the granddaddy of them all. Because they, they'll pull out unless they're on January 1st in their own time slot in the afternoon. Yeah. They want that. And they know they can't do it without the Rose Bowl. That's true. It's true. I think these bowl affiliations and these money – this money that they get from these bowl games is is something that they're scared of losing. I think they they're worried that it won't be the same, that the revenue streams won't be as strong. But I, I really think that potentially you could find ways to increase uh, the the value of bowl season. I think if you make this, you expand the college football playoff to a twelve team format. I think that puts more emphasis on each one of those playoff games. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this and year I alone. It, I think I mean, it increases viewers. I think viewership on these bowl games is going the wrong direction. And I think if you increase the playoff and you put a 12-team playoff, those games, those six games become must-watch TV. Am I am I wrong? I, I think you're even thinking too long-term. I mean, quite frankly, look at those games in November that you have – I mean, heck, this year alone, Minnesota versus Wisconsin. The winner of that could have gotten in the freaking playoff alone, just off the winner of that game. I, I mean, now those games in November mean so much more because it's like the NCAA, like for getting ready for the NCAA basketball tournament. Games at the end of the season could dictate who gets in and who gets out. That of teams that uh, before you're just looking at the top four and ESPN just really leans into it too much where it's all about the playoff. It's all about the playoff. It's all you hear all the time where a lot of these games, you have some fantastic bowl games 
that get overlooked because they're constantly pitching the semifinal a month out. Right. And I just look at, you know, that the Michigan Ohio state game, for example, Yeah, you know, the loser was automatically out and, you know, I understand why I, I get the reasons why, but when I look back over it, those two teams both belong in the playoff hunt. I mean, I think each one of those teams had a chance uh, to compete. Now, obviously Michigan got their ass kicked, uh, against Georgia, but I think, you know, if Ohio State's offense was rolling, they could have ran with any of those teams. And I, I just yeah. think losing that game meant that they were done. I, I, I think you got to look back earlier in that. What if Ohio State beat Oregon in week two? Yep. And still loses to Michigan. I think we'd be having a much different conversation on the playoff. And I'm sorry, Cincinnati fans, Ohio State was getting in ahead of you. And then you would have had Georgia versus Ohio State, Alabama versus Michigan, and let this baby run. And it, it would have been interesting to watch. I agree. I, I just think I, – I mean, I, I get, you know, why they're able to um, keep delaying this. I understand why it's happening. But in regards to the football aspect of it, I, I think it's ridiculous because look at every other sport. I mean, just think about – the college basketball tournament and the type of excitement that that brings, even in the first and second round, yeah. those games between those two teams. And I just think if you put a 12 team playoff into, into uh, you know, into play here, that the games themselves would be must watch TV. I think there'd be upsets. I think there'd be tremendous football to watch. And I just think that the bowl season has become watered down and in some instances non-watchable for the casual football fan. And I think that yeah. that is that is completely gone if you have a, a you know an added uh playoff with 12 teams. You know the one thing that people forget about and granted being Big Ten Homer, this kind of comes into play. But you and I both know a quarterfinal or a semi you know round of like the first round game. I, if they could have it at home stadiums, heck, the first two rounds, have it at home stadiums. Yeah. And having an SEC school come to Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota to play that first round game in the cold, you know and I know that would get monster ratings because they want to see how they play in the elements. Because let's be honest, in the NFL, you're playing in the elements. There's very few teams that don't have that come December and January. I mean, heck, you watch a game in Green Bay, a playoff game in Green Bay. When is it not above above when it when is it above zero? Never. It's yeah. always like ridiculously cold for one of those playoff games where and you always see some fans with no shirt on. Like we talked to Curtis Grant a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, he was talking we were talking about the Minnesota game when it was a snow globe and it really wasn't that bad. Yeah, you looked at the Ohio State fans, and they were like, like they're wondering if a polar bear was going to pick them off in the in the in the corridors. I mean, it, it's playing football in the snow is in the cold is much different. So, yeah, it's it's it would be cool, I think, to include uh, the home stadiums and and give the yeah. higher seeds a, a home field advantage and and play some of these uh, games at at you know SEC and Big Ten venues. Um, instead of just going to the same places over and over again, going to Pat, I mean, I'm so sick of going to watch games in Pasadena. I'm sorry. I'm just not a big fan of the Rose bowl. Uh, you know, I get it, the history of it, but I'm like, who cares? I'd much rather see the Buckeyes playing in death Valley and uh, or playing in, you know, Florida, in the swamp. I mean, I just think that yeah. would be cool and uh, I'm all for it. So we'll see what happens, but obviously we're going to have to keep dealing with what we're dealing with until 2025 at least i'm hoping what? that it picks up before you know in that from today until then i'm just hoping that it gains some traction and we could expand i mean we got till 2025 i mean quite frankly if this is going to pick up steam i think timing was a big problem with this i think we could see it by the conversations are going to have to pick up in 2023 because it's going to be have to be a long-term process to get to that point. I didn't, I don't think they just had enough time to figure out the logistics. Yeah. And getting people on board. I mean, yeah. I, I don't see where is the, um, you know, where are the people that are, that are out there, 
you know, promoting this? Where are the people that are, you know, pushing this along? I just don't see them. I mean, I need, well, we, we need to get people behind this and, and get it to make it happen. Jim Delaney. I mean, Jim Delaney being retired. I, I think if Jim Delaney was still around as the big 10 commissioner, I fully have expect that this would have happened. I mean, this guy can create a coalition better than anybody out there. I mean, it, it's amazing what he's done with the big 10. He was at the forefront of creating the big 10 network, which people question. Yeah. And look what that turned into. And now everybody's doing something like this. I mean, it, it, it's him, you know, Kevin Warren's got big shoes to fill and he came in at a rough time right during the start of COVID. Yeah. Well, let's ask uh, Stanley what he thinks about this when he comes Absolutely. on and we'll talk to him. But real quick, before we get to Stanley, I want to talk about uh, the as the world turns up in Ann Arbor. Um, you know, the, they uh, are trying to downplay everything that's happened since that final game and that shellacking against Georgia, which I loved every minute of um, there. You know, let's be honest. I mean, Jim Harbaugh was was trying to get out the door. He's publicly admitted uh you know on on a couple of different podcasts like our own on the john runyon uh podcast he admitted that he was trying to get back into the nfl that he wanted to go back to the nfl and wanted to try and get to a super bowl and uh you know the rest of his staff took off i mean we had uh you know the offensive and defensive coordinator both bolting and now they've hired jesse minter out of vanderbilt uh, as the new defensive coordinator. And, um, you know, I got to be honest, I'm not as high on this guy as you are. Um, he is a dude that, you know, obviously Jim Harbaugh knows because he was on uh, his brother, John Harbaugh's staff from 2017 to 2020. But prior to that, he was the defensive coordinator at Georgia State and Indiana State, not really traditional powerhouses. And then last year he served as a defensive coordinator for Vanderbilt, which let me tell you, as far as a uh, total defense, uh, they're not in the top 50. So I'm not I'm not sure what this hire gets you. You tell me. You know, I mean, you look – I mean, he's Rick Minter's son. And Rick Minter has, you know, been known in the coaching world for some time. I honestly like this hire quite a bit. Um, I mean, heck, at the end of the day, it is Vanderbilt, for Christ's sake. And Clark Lee has got a heck of a job rebuilding there. And it's going to take some time. But you look at that recruiting class they brought in. It's impressive for Vanderbilt. It's really impressive. And I, 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 you you look at what Barton Simmons and Clark Lee have done there. I mean, it's going to take some time. It's going to be a five-year, if not more, building process to make Vanderbilt back to what, what it was under James Franklin. Uh, I, I just I see this move happening. I'm more concerned on the offensive side of the ball. Um, I mean, they lose a lot this year, a real lot. And I think the spring practice and gaining that culture again is going to be the real key for Harbaugh this year in Ann Arbor. Yeah, you recall that Vandy was two and ten, right? I do, I do, okay. but there was not much there. I mean, they, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you need Jimmys and Joes at the end of the day if you're going to play in the SEC. I get it, I get it. I'm just saying they're a long way away. Yeah. That's why um, I said five years. But I mean, you look at that recruiting class. There's some comers on there, and. I mean, Barton Simmons made his made his uh, made his way at twenty four seven, and I think you're going to see a lot of people going to that way of bringing in analysts like that to help in recruiting. Yeah, well, they they've got a lot of work to do. There's no doubt. I mean, the, this program. You talk about getting back to where Jim or where uh, Franklin had it, and to be honest, I don't think Coach Franklin gets the recognition he deserves oh, 100%. for what he did at Vanderbilt. People kind of just brush that under the rug uh, at this point. But to be honest, Vanderbilt football before Franklin and after Franklin uh, ha should show you what a job that he did while he was there. I mean, Vanderbilt was competitive in yes. the SEC. And, and to say that in regards to football is absolutely astounding. And, and I just don't think he gets the credit he deserves for what he did while while at Vanderbilt, and um, you know we'll we'll see what happens with uh, Clark Lea and the and the program itself um, in the next five years. I mean, do they give him five years? That's the question that I've got. Is you know does he have five years to to build that? Because I agree with with James in the sense that it's it's going to take five years to rebuild, if not more. But you know the patience in college football is something that doesn't really exist. 
Uh, we don't see much patience at all in, in any program. And, and my question is, do they have the patience at Vanderbilt to, to give Coach Lee five years? I mean, uh, they better. Sorry about that. My internet freaked out on me really quick there. Um, you know, it, 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 it's one of those things, no matter if it's football or basketball or whatever sport it is, they have to build themselves up to hit that, that, that one shot of doing it, you know, in a four or five year shot, they can't do it year after year after year. They're just, they're not built that way because, you know, they're more of an educational institution there at Vanderbilt. But I mean, he was there for three years and he went six and seven, nine and four, 90, uh, nine and four in three years at Vanderbilt. I mean, go back prior to that Vanderbilt, struggled in many many ways oh yeah i mean they're <laughs> they've struggled to win games you know outside the sec much less inside the sec yeah and um you know if you go back uh to you know when he was there i'm not even looking so much at the games that that they won but the games that they lost and that they were in uh, were just amazing to me. And I, th I think Coach Franklin uh, deserves more credit for what he did at Vanderbilt. And I think it's going to be tough for anybody to to replicate that, even, uh, you know, even Coach Leah. But we'll see. I mean, you you like Jesse Minner. I, I'm not in love with him. I think this was a hire that he, he kind of made because he had to. I don't think he went out and was like, man, I want to get rid of McDonald's, who did a tremendous job last year at Michigan. And I want to get Jesse Minner. I just don't think that's how it went down. Uh, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, I think we have got Mr. Jackson ready to go. I'm going to pop him on here. That'd be great. Stanley. Gentlemen. How you, how you doing today, sir? I'm fabulous. It's a wonderful Sunday afternoon in uh, Ohio. Yes, sir. I love it. Uh, we appreciate you joining us today. I got to admit I watched the 1997 Rose Bowl last night, and oh my God, it was just as amazing as it was the first time I saw it, buddy. Uh, it was a beautiful ball game. Uh, first to give us give us some memories from that game because, uh, God, I loved watching it. Well, I mean, there's so many memories from that game. Not just the game, the era of uh, Ohio State football. You know, as you remember or recall, it had been 20 years since Ohio State had made it to a Rose Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, I mean, we were loaded. We were a super team. Our offense, arguably, still the greatest offense in college football history. Oh yeah. When you think about the players, the names that were on that team: Terry Glenn, Eddie George, Orlando Pace, Bob Hoying, Rick Dudley. You know, Orlando has a gold jacket um, as an NFL Hall of Famer. So the the names were there, and everything was in place, and we fell short again against Michigan. And uh, and that was the theme for the John Cooper era. I actually jumped on Facebook about a week ago to correct the record for Coach John Cooper and how good he was. He's still the second winningest coach in Ohio State history. Yeah. Um, the fewest games I ever won at Ohio State in my five years was nine. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think people realize that the amount of talent we had and how many games we actually won. So the buildup to that Rose Bowl was significant. We thought we were going to go the year before. That buildup was pretty special. We had clinched the berth prior to playing Michigan and then again fell short in that game. Otherwise, we'd have been national champions. So uh, it was pretty special just to head back out there to Pasadena to be a part of it. Um, everybody was pretty excited about it. Our fan base was excited. I mean, it's probably the most Ohio State fans they've ever had there because the gap was so long. And so, uh, yeah, there are a bunch of great memories. I guess my fondness would probably be, you know, the touchdown pass to David Boston to start yeah. the scoring. Um, very little space to put the ball in, and David <laughs> still had to go out of bounds to secure it and get his feet in. So it was a spectacular play. Uh, and that one, you know, will always go down in history. The you know, when you were playing, I know hindsight's twenty twenty. Did you realize at the moment, like, holy crap, this is like really special, like that, or was it one of those things later on, looking back on it, that you were like, you know, it, it, you couldn't believe the talent pool that you guys had there and what it turned into even later on in their uh, post collegiate career. Yeah, I don't think we understood the amount of talent that was there. I, I think that that part is evident. Now we knew the Rose Bowl was special. Yeah. And we were fighting tooth and nail to get there. I mean, I just, my five years, you know, realistically, I could have three national championships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. John Cooper could go down as one of the greatest coaches in college football history. In 1993, 
uh, we were loaded defensively. We had a powerful run game. Our offensive line was exceptional. And we lost one game. And that yeah. game, and we tied Wisconsin on the road, and they were pretty good. They had the one-two punch with Fletcher um, and Moss. Moss. Yeah. Um, but that team was loaded. Raymond Harris was our starting tailback. We rotated quarterbacks, Brett Powers and Bob Hoying. But defensively, we had a lot of great players, and it was anchored by Dan Wilkinson, who was the number one pick of the draft. You could have easily been a national champion that year. Had it been a playoff scenario, we would have made the playoff, and I think we would have beat everybody in the country, quite frankly. It was just something about the Michigan game. We could not get over that hump. Um, and then, again, you go back to 95, where we probably had one of the more prolific offenses um, in the history of college football. And then 96, your defense is loaded. You know, Antoine Winfield, who played 13, 14 years in the NFL, all pro, was our nickel. He didn't even start on that defense. Sean yeah. and Ty Howard were the guys who were anchoring the defense from the, the passing perspective. Andy Katzamore was our middle linebacker. Luke Pickle, Mike Vrabel, two guys that were just voted coach of the year. We're on that defensive line. Uh, our, our strong safety was a guy by the name of Rob Kelly. Rob yeah. had a short NFL career due to just head injuries. But you talk about a guy knocking your face off. Um, the defense was special, and it was loaded. And, you know, we had some good guys on the offensive end. So you had mentioned David Boston earlier who was there, and uh, Mike Wiley. Our offensive line was very good. And so the opportunities that we had to play for national championships, I think, was strictly because of the talent. But – we would fall short one week every year, and that was yeah. disappointing. And so, uh, yeah, it was a special time. But we knew the Rose Bowl was special because there had been such a big gap in between the last time Ohio State had played in that game, and, and everybody was excited about the game. There's no doubt. And, you know, this this brings me to, to my next question because we, it's something we talked about uh, a little bit earlier before you came on, Stanley, and something that, you know, came out this week that they're not going to expand – the college football playoff, you know, from four to 12 or anything, you know, at least until 2025. And, you know, my, my feelings about it are that there's teams that do get left out and there's teams like those teams that you were on that because of one game didn't get a shot to compete for the national championship. And I think that expanding that uh, playoff to 12 teams, I think that would take care of a lot of that. And I just want to get your thoughts on how the current Fourteen playoff, uh, you know, series stands, and what your thoughts are on, on possible expansion. Whether you're in agreement with it, or, or whether you like the way it is. Well, no, I'm not in agreement with it, and I'm surprised that the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Big Twelve voted against expansion. Quite frankly, I mean, those are the conferences outside of the Pac-12 that have been left out most often. Yeah. In my opinion, you don't have a real playoff until you get people out of it. Yeah. yeah have a selection committee that tells you we have a problem yeah we have five power five conferences in my opinion it is an easy fix this is an easy fix the five teams five conferences get an automatic bid and then you have a one at large bid and that goes to the next highest ranked team yeah have the conferences do away with divisions and take the very best team out of it the top two teams go into the start of the playoff which would be the conference championship and then again you take the very next the very next highest rated team after that. That way you take people out of it. Whenever you have people making these decisions, you're going to have problems. It's yeah. not skewed in one direction or the other. And I think that's what we find ourselves in. The committee has given us all sorts of excuses as to why they've left certain teams out. <clears throat> and let's be honest about this. You go back to the very first playoff that Ohio State was privileged to be in and won it all. Uh, the reality is the Buckeyes probably shouldn't have been in it. Yeah. Going into the last weekend, they were behind two Big 12 teams. Yeah. And, you know, based on factors that the committee has never really been honest about, the Buckeyes were able to sneak in. The Buckeyes have been favored twice in that. We were the first team not to be a conference champion to get into that. So, so I think you got to figure out how can we take people out of this scenario in selecting who's playing for a national championship. You don't have that, you know, in the NFL or any other level. You don't have that in Division Two when it comes to college football 1A or Division One AA. Their playoff is set by seeding based on, you know, how many games you win in the year, you know. Basketball is a little different. I know they have the selection committee, but you have all those automatic bids that put teams in it that deserve it right away. Now, as far as 12 teams, I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't think you have 12 teams in college football that are good enough to compete for a national championship. 
I don't think it's like the NFL where you have parity across the board and you can have a wild card team like the Giants knock off an undefeated Patriots team in the championship because their defense got really hot. Yeah, I think eight should probably be your max. I think six would be a good number, but but I would cap it at eight. And again, I would take the selection committee out of it. I would grant automatic bids to the Power Five conferences, and then maybe one automatic bid to the Group of Five, and then two. The next two teams are the two highest seeded teams. If you wanted to get to eight, to make it a more balanced level playing field. But you know, you think about college football this year. If you go all the way down to twelve teams, that twelve team is you know could get the brakes beat off of them by the number one team in the country. I agree. Now, going kind of going back a little bit, uh, talk about your recruiting process. I mean, I know you went to Patterson Catholic. Was there a lot of pressure since you were an East Coast guy to go to a BC, a Syracuse, or an East Coast school? And and how did that affect your – what was your decision process and who, who was the assistant coach that recru- recruited you to Ohio State? Like, what was that all about? How did that feel at the time? Well, I had an older brother that uh, was really good. Um, he played six games as a senior before he blew his knee out. And, you know, this is back in 1989, and he had a 1,000 yards passing at the time. I mean, that was, like, unheard of. Yeah. Uh, he blew his ACL out, and back then in 1989, that was like a death sentence, right? You, you yeah. And no one thought you were good enough. And so he really didn't get to experience the recruiting process. You know, my parents, my mother went to a community college. My father never graduated from high school. He was a hard-working American. who had kids early and went to work. So it wasn't like my parents or anyone in my circle really understood the process. Now, my high school coach, Amon Lou Mathis, he played football at The Ohio State University. So so he was the one that sort of navigated the space for us. And quite frankly, he was always pushing me towards Ohio State. And so I had known about Ohio State since my sophomore in high school, talking to him. And, you know, I took a handful of visits, not really understanding why I should pick those certain schools. Um, at the time, Rutgers, my home state, wanted me to play defensive back, so that wasn't going to happen because I was a quarterback. <laughs> I did go to Syracuse, and, go to, and I went to Kansas, but really, um, I went to the places where coaches were calling me the most. Yeah. Uh, didn't look at whether or not those schools had a history of playing black quarterbacks. Uh, we didn't look at what offenses those schools were running, whether it would fit me. It was just, you know, these places were calling me, and my coach wanted me to go to Ohio State. So, in hindsight, we really didn't know what we were doing, quite frankly. And, yeah. you know, we kind of got lucky. And, look, my career wasn't the greatest at Ohio State. I had a lot of challenges. I'm not sure uh, the community really wanted a black quarterback at that time, to be honest with you. I received a lot of hate mail. And I spent my fair share fighting for the job only because, quite frankly, I, I think I was – I should have picked the coaching staff that really truly understood a black quarterback back then because it's different. Coach yeah. Mike Stock was the ex who recruited me. That's the guy who recruited me. He was our receivers coach. He was phenomenal. He was outstanding. He could sell ice to an Eskimo. Um, <laughs> and he ultimately left and went to the NFL to be a special teams coach. And so, uh, so I didn't have him to lean on either. But, you know, I was more like black quarterbacks historically because we grew up in different communities from a perspective of attitude and how you attack the game, especially when you're an athlete, you're more like DBs. You're a little more arrogant, a little more cocky. Um, The way you play the game is different. And that's not what historically, back in even the late 90s, coaches were looking for in a quarterback. Coaches were looking for more of the all-American kid that was going to do things that everybody was supposed to do and wasn't so cocky and spent a bunch of time watching film. And, and that just wasn't me. And the reality is I think we're starting to see a significant change in how black quarterbacks are produced out of these different communities because now they're coming in with a better understanding of the offense. They throw the ball better. They're more accurate. I mean, look at C.J. Stroud. He may be one of the more accurate quarterbacks yeah. we've ever had in the history of Ohio State football. And so so that dichotomy is changing significantly how quarterbacks are trained. I mean, my high school coach used to tell me, if this kid isn't open, you make something happen. Yeah. Well, that's not the case in high school anymore. These kids are learning how to go through a progression. And then the other thing that really helps the college quarterback or the high school quarterback make the transition, and we're actually seeing it at the co- college to the NFL level now, is that the systems are so similar. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's running a version of the spread, right? The spread isn't an offense. It's a concept. But everybody's running a concept of the spread, so quarterbacks understand it more. And quite frankly, it's a lot easier. 
I mean, I was just having this conversation with a couple of friends. Think about this. I mean, people forget how difficult it was to go on a two-minute drive. Uh -huh. Joe Rain put one together, right? To end the Rose Bowl. We had three pass interference calls, thank God, on that drive. But <laughs> when we had two receivers and a tight end that were going out on routes, and the defense had three linebackers, maybe two linebackers, a nickel, and four secondary guys, it was very difficult to go down and score with two minutes. And that's why guys like Joe Montana are so special. Yeah. Now, the offense spreads you out. Defensively, you got real problems. Number one, you can't hit anybody anymore, so the intimidation factor is taken away from the game. Oh, yeah. And ultimately, you find yourselves with a one-on-one -on -one opportunity where you didn't get that in the late 90s. And a lot of teams, that you know, if you look at – I don't know if you guys have watched Canadian football, but Canadian football yeah. was kind of ahead of the curve because it was a wide-open game. You only had three downs. And a lot of what you see from offense and defense today in college and in the NFL, you saw in Canada. And Canada had this match concept on defense. It was like a match-up zone. So it's really a zone, but as soon, soon as someone enters your zone, now it's a man-to-man -man for you. So if you're watching the Super Bowl and you're wondering how Cooper Cup ends up on a linebacker, like – what defensive coordinator would have a linebacker covering, you know, a receiver who's having one of the greatest years in the history of NFL football? Well, it's the defense. Cooper lines up at a position. If he goes inside, the linebacker is the only guy inside. He ends up playing man on that, and he ends up grabbing Cooper, right, clutching for his life, uh, hoping to stop a touchdown. Well, that those are the concepts you see now, so it's made the game a lot easier. And that's a law is a convoluted answer to get back to, you know, my experience and how just things have changed for the black quarterback. It was different for me at Ohio state. I think it's a lot better now. And you know, the game really is suited towards athletic quarterbacks. Yeah. Those guys who can make plays in space, like a Joe Burrow, who can absolutely run the thing around for like an absurd number of touchdowns when he was in high school down in Athens has, you know, really thrived at the next level because the systems are so similar all the way from his high school playing days. Yeah, no, that, and that's what we were talking about a little bit earlier when we were discussing you coming on the show, Stanley, we, we both kind of felt like you were ahead of your time in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, both culturally and also, you know, football wise. I mean, I, I, people thought of you as a running quarterback, but when I was watching that game last night, you could swing it too, man. I mean, I, I just saw the, you know, quarterbacks that are playing right now, you know, the Kyler Murray's, the Jalen Hurts, the guys that Lamar's, you know, everybody that's that's out there playing now. I saw that a lot of that your game and those guys are their game and yours. And I feel like, um, you know, that's kind of the evolution of the position uh, is more suited to, to your game now and the offenses that exist now. Uh, I think you would thrive in uh, with your skill set. You got any thoughts on that? No, I, I agree with you. I, I think, um, you know, coaches have gotten smarter, right? And, you know, historically, even at the top level of the NFL, you pay these guys all this money, they still had a system and they wanted to find a guy that fit their system. And yeah. I think an evolution in that now. Coaches are realizing we need to take the best guy available and fit a system that makes sense for that particular player. And Baltimore is doing a fantastic job of that with Lamar Jackson. Now, I, I put him in a separate category because the way he runs is – He's like a tailback. I mean, he's pretty <laughs> um, but you see the same thing with Jalen Hurts. You see the same thing with Kyler Murray. Uh, you see the same thing with Patrick Mahomes. I mean, uh, you see the same thing with Allen in Buffalo, where, you know, the coaches are now realizing, look, we've got a special guy at the quarterback position. Let's take advantage of that. Now, here's what the NFL has done to help that. Because back in 1995, you wouldn't want to do that with an NFL quarterback because you have him running in the secondary and linebackers want to take care of him. Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget. I grew up in New Jersey, big giant fan. Um, but Joe Montana, in my opinion, is the greatest quarterback to ever play. And I believe it was 1991. And San Francisco was letting the Giants have it in the playoffs until Jim Burt peeled around on a twist and almost decapitated Joe Montana. Mm hmm put him out of the game, and it changed from there. It, it The game was over. The Giants took over, went on to win a Super Bowl. In today's game, Joe Montana would still be out, but, he, you know, he wouldn't take a hit like that because yeah. what happened is the defender, once he got close to engage, he would go to the only area where you can hit an NFL quarterback, and that's between the shoulders and the waist belt. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a head hit. He wouldn't be laid out across the floor. So the the NFL has gotten smart about that. We're going to use quarterbacks the way these offenses allow us to use them. We have to protect them. 
Uh, I'm also a guy that really believes that the quarterback position is highly overrated, quite frankly. You know, everybody <laughs> thinks you need to get a great quarterback to win a championship. That is not the case. We've seen great teams go through and win championships because they're built around a solid defense or a great run game. Um, but the position can take you over the hump, and, and that's where we see a real change due to this offense that has permeated all of football. We've never seen this before, by the way. We've never seen a concept of football offensively that starts now. Look, I got a sixth grader. We run the spread in the sixth grade. That's crazy. I've got a, a freshman at Westfield North High School and a, a, a junior that will be the starting backfield next year. They run the spread. You go down and to the horseshoe on Saturday. We watch the spread there. And then, you know, you go up to Cleveland, down to Cincinnati, and these teams are running a version of the spread. It's, it's amazing how this concept has just caught fire and it, it's run everywhere. I mean, in football, typically there's a cycle of how you run offense and defense. Things come back. And, and I do see a cycle coming back to power football. You see more fullbacks in the NFL now, mm -hmm. tight ends being used. But, you know, we've had times where there have been offenses that have come out. Everybody doesn't use them. Everybody didn't go to the West Coast offense. Everybody didn't go to the run-and-shoot offense, right? Everybody didn't run the wing T offense at one point. But, you know, now everybody has some component of the spread. It's a unique time in the history of football that the first defense that truly catches up to figure out how to start it will be a team that's going to be pretty – how to stop it is a team that's going to be pretty special. Who – who is that player or coach, that person that really helped develop you, not only as a player, but more more importantly as a person? Uh, not only, you know, it, that really you take their advice even from today of things they told you way back when. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, for me, it's more than one guy. <clears throat> um, obviously, it starts with my father. Uh, and my brother, two men who uh, helped mold me as a young quarterback. And then I told you, Amon Lou Mathis was my high school quarterback who played at my high school coach who played at Ohio State. He played strong safety there. Ultimately, played in the USFL. He's a guy that I listened to. So, so I, you know, I, I don't know how this happened, but early on in life, I realized that you can learn from anybody. And I yeah. think I was just lucky stumbling on that. To be honest with you, um, as an example, Walt Harris probably was the best offensive mind I was ever around. But well, well, Walt could be a real jerk. Walt could be a real <laughs> jerk. Uh, I'll give you guys a, a, a great story. We were, this was my junior year. Uh, we're undefeated. And uh, as a matter of fact, no, it is not my junior year. It's my redshirt sophomore year. We are undefeated. Bob Hoying is our starting quarterback. And we're running plays at the Woody Hayes in the indoor facility. And I take off and I run a touchdown. And run a touchdown into the corner end zone. It's not even close. Nobody's around me. But I'm holding the ball in one hand as I run by. Coach Harris doesn't say a word to me. We continue practice. At the end of practice, Coach Harris starts to tell a story about a Hall of Fame all-pro quarterback. He was talking about John Elley. Watching this guy run with the ball in one hand and knocked it off of his knee and fumbled the ball. <laughs> in the game where it was important. And none of my quarterbacks are going to run with the ball like that and knock it off their knee and fumble the ball. So because of that, Stan, you're doing a fumble drill. So here we are at the end of practice, <laughs> and he's throwing the ball, bouncing it everywhere off the turf, old-school turf, in the Woody Hayes Athletic Facility as I'm running around jumping on the football. Now, I thought it was a little unfair. I didn't fumble the ball, Coach. That was John Elway. You should have him do the drill. <laughs> but, but, but he's had a hard, stern approach. So so he's the guy that I would always listen to when it regards to football, but but he was a tough guy to get along with sometimes because he could be a real jerk. Um, and then, honestly, I had a guy by the name of Anthony Cavillo who was a Hall of Fame quarterback in the CFL. Um, I forgot where Anthony played college football, somewhere out west. And uh, Anthony Cavillo was one of the best quarterbacks I've ever seen play the game of football. He's a Hall of Famer in Canada. He threw for a bunch of yards. And he was really the guy that really taught me the nuance of the quarterback position when I spent time with him with the Montreal Alouettes. Nice. Hey, uh, last one for me, Stanley. I just want to get your thoughts on a former teammate of yours that we talked about a little bit earlier uh, that played D on that D-line and uh, now is the head coach at Cincinnati. And that's uh, – you know, your boy uh, Fickle there, he he had a tremendous season. And I, I really like what he's done 
you know, building that program down there. Obviously, you know, when he took over for Trestle, um, you know, it was a very, very tough season. And I thought he did a great job, honestly, as a Buckeye fan. I, I thought he did a tremendous job keeping that team together and playing as well as they did. And I, I was very happy that he got a shot uh, to be a head coach down there. And I think he's done an amazing job with the Bearcat, uh, Bearcats and, and building that program up. As a former teammate of his, I just want to get your thoughts on on him as a coach and whether you saw you know traits uh, from him as a player uh, that would translate. Yeah, I think you know one of the, the things that you saw that we all noticed early on was that he was a fighter. Oh yeah, tough as nails. I mean, he's an undersized nose guard. Oh yeah, back in the day, you know, um, where all state wrestler too. All state wrestler, but you know, you, it was a different brand of football. You know, yeah. uh, my kids watch it and call it dinosaur football. <laughs> so most teams ran the, in the Big Ten. Everybody ran the ball 75 percent of the time, straight yeah. downhill, off tackle. And Luke was in that trench and he was undersized and undermanned. And he did a hell of a job as a four year starter for Ohio State. That's very, very rare. Um, and then I think he understood his limitations early on. The rest of us went on to hope and pray and think claw our way back into the NFL by going through, you know, arena football or Canada and Luke right away knew, no, that's not the lane for me. Let me jump into coaching. And so he was acutely aware of who he was, his ability, but he was a hell of a fighter. And I think you see that permeate throughout his teams, quite frankly. Um, and he's done a bang up job. I think we're very proud of him as the Ohio State alumni. I mean, he's at Cincinnati. Now they're jumping into the big 12. So he's a power five team. And uh, the first group of five to make it into a playoff, which is significant, quite frankly. If you look at you know some of the teams that have knocked on that door, Cincinnati was the one to kick it down. That that's historic. Yeah, and I, I think it's all a testament to Luke's ability to connect with his players. Yeah, and at his time at Ohio State, I mean, think about the number of players where Urban Meyer didn't want them. Darren Lee is the first guy that sort of springs to mind. Uh, Urban didn't want him. Darren Lee becomes all time you know Ohio State linebacker. Yeah. So he's got an eye for talent, and he knows how to develop it. The only knock that I've ever given Luke Fickle as a coach was the one year he was the head coach at Ohio State. I thought he was too passive on the offensive side. Yeah. I thought he gave those coaches too much leeway. I, I, I really felt like had he taken the reins, the horse by the reins that particular season, he may still be Ohio State's head coach. I mean, and I never want to knock any particular player, but they absolutely made the wrong choice at quarterback that year. Yeah. If, if I'm Kenny Guyton, I may still want to. Sh- I think we lost this. Oh, there we go. Are you guys oh. there? Yeah, yeah. we lost we, your audio. Lost your sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we heard Kenny Guyton. Kenny Guyton was supposed to be the, the, the choice of quarterback that year. I believe they went with Bowserman. Uh, he wasn't really ready. And then ultimately they went to Braxton Miller, who was very dynamic. But, yeah. but still wasn't the best all-around quarterback. Braxton ends up becoming an all-star. But yeah. at the time, Kenny Guyton was the best quarterback on that team, and he proved that when he came in and saved our bacon twice yeah. years to come. And, and that's the one area I thought Luke made a big mistake in allowing that coaching staff to go to a kid that was not the best quarterback because that year would have been different for him, and they would have won more games had he made a different choice. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. I didn't even, I didn't even remember that. What one last question before you before we wrap up is what advice would you give? Do we lose them? No, I'm still here. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, what advice would you, you know, now that you know you, you look back on your career and what advice would you give a future player going to, into college or a future coach that wants to get into college? Um, looking back on what you've gone through that you know that you wish you would have known back then. Uh, that's great. I've got three boys um, that I'm hoping all will have an opportunity to play college football at some level. Um, and, and the first thing I tell them, uh, this is a little counterintuitive to be honest with you, but the first thing I tell them is that football isn't everything. Football isn't everything. Don't put all your eggs in that basket. And remember that at some point it's going to be taken from you unless you become a coach. And even then you, you have to retire. The one thing I noticed about football players, which is different than any other sport is we all experience some form of depression when the game is over. Oh yeah. Some of it a lot worse than others. And I think part of the reason for that is because the void of football can't be filled anywhere else. If you're a great basketball player, you can suit up for a church league until you're 65. 
Yeah. Put the uniform on, have a team, practice once a week, feel good about it. Same thing with baseball, right? Same yeah. thing with hockey. You see these leagues. Football, nobody's going out to play football and then go to work on Monday. When yeah. it's over, it's over. The camaraderie yeah. of the locker room, the number of players, it, it's done. And football is simply the greatest game because it's poetry in motion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I work now. We, we own a bank called Buckeye State Bank. Tomorrow we'll have um, our annual event where we do some training. We talk about team. And so I'm going to show some clips from the Ohio State uh, National Championship run to show the, why football is important. Um, it takes 11 guys that are on the field to do their job at the same time to have success. One guy messes up and the play blows up. Offensive line can block perfectly. Quarterback takes his drop, goes through a great read, delivers a dime. If the receiver doesn't look it in, the play is a failure. Yeah. Right? If your offensive tackle gets his feet together, gets knocked on his tail, even though the rest of the line is blocking, even though the receivers are wide open and the quarterback sees it, he gets hit in his back because of one guy. That's why football is the greatest sport there ever was. Because you can't take it over with one player. You can't have one dominant pitcher on the mound that just shuts down the other team. Or a goalie that shuts down the other team. Or Michael Jordan that comes in and, you know, gets one other player and goes on a six-game undefeated championship run. That that doesn't happen in football. You need people to do their job. I don't care how good your quarterback is. Peyton Manning went years before he won a playoff game until they had a team in place and the right coach in place. And so I always tell them, you know, don't make football the most important thing because it may be taken away from you, but it is something that you're going to love and remember for the rest of your life because it's going to teach you lessons that will carry you beyond the game. So That's what I tell my kids. And then the next thing is, if you really want this, don't get out work. It's just that simple. Don't get out work. Your talent will only take you so far. But if you understand the game, my my sophomore, my son that will be a sophomore as a quarterback, if you know where the ball is supposed to go before everybody else, you'll be fine. But if you're struggling to make that decision, then you're going to be in trouble. So, yeah, I mean, it's a a very tough question because everything I have in life, I can really, you know, attribute back to the game of football, giving me a lot of things, teaching you how to compete, teaching you how to get up when you're knocked down. And then obviously having the chance to play at Ohio State, being introduced to folks where I was able to raise some money to be a part of this bank project. So so football has given me a lot. And I, I want my kids to understand that. But at the same time, you know, it may not work out the way that you want it to. And you have to be prepared for that. Because for 99.9% of us, it does not work out the way that we want it to. <laughs> we all want to play a long time in the NFL. And that's just not the case. And you have to be prepared for that afterwards. No, there's no doubt. And Stanley, we just want to thank you so much yeah. man, for being here today. We loved uh, getting a chance to talk to you. We loved watching you play. You were always one of my favorites uh, back in the day for the Buckeyes. And I love uh, hearing you on Big Ten Network, too. So thank you so much for taking some time on Sunday morning to uh, talk some ball with us. Thank, thank you. you so much. Oh, thank you. Anytime. Let me know. All right, Stanley. Have a good one, man. We'll talk to you again real soon, okay? Yep. Thanks, guys. Have okay. Wow. Wow. That was pretty cool, man. Uh, <laughs> dude, I, uh, I gotta be honest. Um, that was even better than I expected. Uh, I thought yeah. that would be great, but, uh, he breaks it, he breaks it down, man. He's, he's a smart guy and, uh, well, was a tremendous athlete and a tremendous football player, but is even, uh, in my opinion, even a better analyst and a better guy. Um, I, I think, uh, his kids are got a good guy to look up to and, uh, have a good chance of being successful whenever they do because uh, he gets it. You could just tell he's just a good teacher. Yeah. You know, he's just got that way of connecting with people that, like, honestly, I'm not going to lie, it, it felt like we we're just kind of ha- sitting down just talking to him. Like, we weren't actually having an interview with him. Just He just sitting on here and nobody else is watching. It's just, it, it, it was really interesting listening to his process and what he went through because, like we talked about before, I mean, everybody sees the three hours that happen on the game, but there's so much that happens in the meantime that, you know, they're just like us in many ways. They go through the ups and downs, and it's awesome hearing these stories. Yeah, it really is. And I love uh, I love taking these guys back because, yeah. um, you know, I know they, they love their playing days, and sometimes it's helpful to remember and, and, and talk about it and, you know, I, I, I honestly, uh, I honestly agree with him. I watching that tape last night and watching a lot of his games, even when I was younger, 
you know, I felt like he could be the guy that could really do something in that Buckeye offense. And I felt like a lot of times he wasn't given uh, the chance that he deserved. And, you know, whether that was because he was, a, you know, a black quarterback or whether that was because he was a guy that was kind of viewed as a, a running quarterback and a mobile guy, you know, maybe it was both. I don't know, but, you know, I'm just glad that at least now, you know, we got a lot of ways to go, but I'm glad that at least we've gotten to the point where the best guy usually at this point gets on the field. And uh, it's a shame that it took so long to get there. But I mean, that dude is, that dude was a really great athlete and, and he could throw the ball. And, and he's talking about that throw to, um, uh, to David Boston. And, and that's the one that really, really stuck in my mind from rewatching that game last night was, I mean, that was a big time throw from a guy that couldn't throw the football. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just wish he would have gotten even more opportunities to be out on the field because uh, he was he was a big time playmaker. Yeah, absolutely. So awesome. Well, we're out of time for today, but uh, we'll be back next week. I'm going to be up in Ohio. It is my grandfather's the biggest Buckeye of them all. Georgie Frank. It is his 94th birthday. So I will be up in Ohio next week. We're going to take the week off, but we'll come back uh, the following week and break down the combine a little bit more in depth as we didn't get a chance to get into that today. So I hope we'll uh, we'll come back after uh, next week's break and then get into the combine and maybe maybe have some other guests uh, to join us and, and talk some college football. You got it. Great right. to see you, Nate. Great to see you, buddy. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and I will talk to you again real soon, okay? Hey, talk to you then. All right, buddy. Have a good one.